1: Before we start our episode today, this is just a reminder, History Hack does have a Patreon account and all of your donations are gratefully appreciated. There's lots of perks on there, secret groups on Facebook. Do get involved. We would love to see more of you. Enjoy the episode today. Hello and welcome to a special edition of History Hack. Um, If you don't live under a rock, you will have realised that it's the 31st of July today. Lockie, why is that an important date?
2: All sorts of reasons, Um, but primarily as far as we're concerned, it's the anniversary of the opening of one of those battles that you've heard of. If you've heard of maybe two battles in the First World War, um, you'll have heard of the Somme and you'll have heard of the third Ypres campaign, uh, sometimes known as the Passchendaele uh, offensive. And that's what we're talking about today. A few of us in the house. How's it going, Holmes?
3: Not too bad. I think we need to be mindful of Certain types of people get very offended referring to the as Battle of Passchendaele, so we need to be mindful of that while we proceed.
2: Yeah. Okay, so we shouldn't say the Battle of Passchendaele, then?
3: Well, only when you get to the Battles of Passchendaele bit, then I think we can say it, but let's not... Yeah. I mean, I don't care personally, but I know there are people out there that, you know, are irked by these things.
1: They do, but they're, they're also the same kind of people that are perhaps irked by the number of buttons on a tunic and a television adaptation. Um <laughs>
4: <laughs> okay, well, let's, let's pay tribute to these guys. Beth's here as well. Hey, Beth. Hey, Alex. You know, yeah, looking forward to this one as always. We, we like to be in our wheelhouse, don't we? So We do. You've got four dedicated war in the
1: room who are going to talk you through what happened in this battle. Because because it's a long battle, isn't it? Um, let's go to Lockie first. Because, Lockie, talk to us about the fact that it started in summer why it happened, are you gonna cover that for us? And, yeah, let's, do, yeah, let's do that. So you you get us rolling, um, and then I'll take over when it when it starts raining.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, sing that Eurythmic song. Um we've got the battle that uh, I think our commander in chief almost always wanted to have. Um, really, with, with Third eight. Um commander chief uh, Sir Douglas Haig uh, always wanted to be fighting in Flanders. I mean, the battle itself has got some things in common with the with the Somme, and I, I mentioned uh, the Somme. It's a big offensive with a big bombardment and absolutely not a hint of surprise about it. It's pretty obvious that this, uh, this action was going to be fought um, because, actually, there's quite a lot to be gained by it, um, even kind of the War Cabinet having meetings uh, the previous year was saying things like clearing the Belgian coast is absolutely our top priority, and especially so when we get into 1917, and that's the year we're talking about, uh, because the Germans had restarted their unrestricted submarine warfare uh, business, and it was really worrying. They were sinking a lot of ships. All right, there's other consequences as well. They're going to bring the Americans into it. But, but crucially for Britain, stopping this process of ships being sunk uh, was, was a very real thing. Um, Haig himself was, if not optimistic of a, of a total breakthrough, then he, he thought it was possible. Um, and if nothing else, he was going to fight the Germans on a ground that they would not fall back from. They were not going to refuse to fight uh, here. Uh, and so with short logistics chains, this is a chance to really smack them hard. Um, there's, it's not just a case of driving through and breaking through. Though there's a chance to interrupt German logistics, um, there's a big railway junction really not too far away from, from where the front lines were. Uh, and the feeling was if you could capture that at Rousselara, or Roule, uh, as it was known, if you're going to do the French pr- uh, pronunciation, um, then you could effectively effectively cut the German army off uh, there and cut off their submarine ports uh, as well and possibly have them rolling backwards. So there's real g- uh, gains to be had, strategic uh, gains, and maybe a flank to turn as well. Uh, you never know. Now, Haig's plans for this were big when they were first kind of mooted, kind of beginning of nineteen sixteen. He's also planning the Somme uh, that kind of time, and his plan was if there was breakthrough on the Somme, they immediately unleash second army through farmers. and that didn't happen. Um, but plans were being made, and uh, and they ended up not quite being um, what, what Haig wanted. Um, Cooperation with the with, with the French was always uh, going to be part of it. Um, Britain the lead, uh, though, because you know we're close to Britain uh, there. Um, who's going to command is one of these controversies um, about it. Now, when we get into nineteen seventeen, you know, the, the controversy essentially, and, and what people tend to say is that the man who was commanding the British Army in that area is a man called Herbert Plumer, very methodical, uh, very competent. Uh, indeed, and it should have been his baby right from the start. Haig didn't do that. Haig picked another man. He had proved man.
1: himself just a few weeks before in the preliminaries for this offensive as well, hadn't he?
2: He had, but he hadn't before that. And Haig made the decision before uh, Messine Ridge. Yeah, Messine Ridge happened in, in June of 1917, so yeah, nearly two months before. But actually, um, Haig had decided that michael man uh, was Hewitt to was going to be in charge of this offensive at the yeah. end of April. But for the um, reasons
1: that, like, Messines, for people who don't know, is regarded as, as one of the most successful British actions of the First World War, isn't
2: it? Well, it was. It was this position that dominated the the, the landscape to the south of, of Ypres um, since the Germans had took it off the British and French in 1914. Um, and it's it's a significant lump uh, for sure. We're in a place where there aren't very many significant lumps, and and so actually Pluma's plan and execution and, and capturing machine ridge is a pretty impressive thing. I, I think we can go overboard with the with the machine ridge mm. capture because it, it was blown to bits. You know, it, it wasn't a, a, a simple thing. This was an incredibly expensive and difficult uh, operation involving huge mines, massive artillery bombardments that splattered the ground so much that it couldn't be moved over quickly.
1: Yeah. Okay, and also so, well, not cheap in terms of manpower, what it cost to take it either.
2: No, indeed no. And that's that's the kind of the, it was the, the initial assault was was well i say easily done um but fairly fairly cheap in terms of casualties but any attempt to try and press on and actually really kind of take the ground which made the ridge secure or even get to the german gun line that's when it that's when it started being yeah. costly we ended um, up
1: guys all along the top of the ridge getting shelled didn't we
2: yeah yeah exactly and and, and plumer had well if not failed then he certainly struggled um through 1916 yeah. uh in the salient area they'd lost the bluff which is a pretty much the only bit of high ground that the british really held um struggled around st elwar around the craters over there as well and so pluma wasn't exactly flavor of the run- mm. month, kind of in early 1917 whereas hubert gough was
1: peter Kins, peter hart loves to tell everybody i think because he just likes using the word gough is a thruster <laughs> is <Those it>? <laughs> yeah
2: well no and actually you know in terms of what the british army had achieved so far gough was probably the highest performing army commander um, because his 5th Army had taken the, the most valuable positions on the Somme battlefield. Uh, when uh, combat had resumed in early 1917, it was his army that had driven, them, um, driven the Germans back away from the Somme altogether and then and led the pursuit uh, to the Hindenburg line as well. It was his divisions that were the top-performing ones, which were actually setting the benchmark for what what kind of the attack templates and, uh, and the way British army formations would be trained. And so Gough really was the top man at that time yeah. Right. things didn't quite work out perfectly at bullcourt but you know it's still he's he's very much the and he's also the youngest of the army commanders he he's energetic you know he's a full 12 13 years younger than plumer as well and the feeling is for the breakout which haig hoped would happen at least then that Goff was the man now in terms of the, the preparation for the offensive uh, I kind of want to say that this is almost the pinnacle of 1916 style fighting, because what you've got is huge amounts of artillery. Um, uh, you know, where we talk about the destructive bombardment launched for the Battle of the Somme, we're talking about 1.7 million cannon shells fired in the space of a week. Third Ape doubles that. Um, they increase There's the number of... they behind
1: each other, aren't they? Some of the guns firing over the top of the guns in front, like wheel to wheel.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and so it's a hugely destructive bombardment um, that they fire. Um, they're, they're aiming for high ground again. All right. They've captured the high ground at Nassim Ridge, which is to the south of E. But actually, if they're going to get to that rail junction at Rulé, uh then they need the, to, to capture the high ground to the east uh, of Ypres, uh Gellibelt Plateau rising up towards Passchendaele Ridge. All right. Capture all of that. And then it's pure flat ground. Uh, a way to rulee and then then that's the prize isn't it the rail junction um a few miles to go to capture that high ground and so you're not going to do it in a day uh, very likely um so they batter uh, the german first and second lines in particular uh, and then make plans for an advance thereafter um the plan was still to have french support uh, and they did support, although they were a little bit cagey on that. Uh, the French and and with uh, well, just over a month ago, um, the the French were almost saying, "Look, we're not with you on this." They're still kind of piecing their army back together after the Nivelle offensive, and let's maybe not get started on Nivelle because no. they were really hoping out. the war
1: would be over by this point, were they? Because they believed his stupid, stupid posturing about being able to finish it in a couple of days. That's the Nivelle story in a nutshell. And it failed because he was silly. Um, yeah, and France are still fighting a war and they're not. Yeah, and it, and it
2: did complicate things uh, for 3rd April as well because with the Nivelle Offensive failing, Haig had to restart the Arras Offensive to try and hold Germans in place to the south, which meant that he couldn't move enough troops up early on to Flanders. and There's a knock-on effect uh, which complicates things and actually the, quite a few of these units uh, involved on, on the 31st July 1917 uh, have fought at Arras uh, as well and are, are still putting themselves back together from that, which is, which is a shame, but units like 51st division, for example, are are in that, um, bracket. Um, no chance of sneakiness. The Germans knew an attack was coming in that area. It was it was pretty predictable. Uh, and so when we get to the time of the assault, well, there's a lot of counter battery firing. Um, the Germans have got their artillery in place. They've moved in ten fresh divisions. They've got uh, loads of guns spare. So this is really going to be both sides throwing the kitchen sink at each other uh, in Flanders. Germans not going to give an inch. Britain definitely uh, looking to looking to bust through. Um, and so we have. Nine divisions throw themselves over the top with a bit of support for a couple of other divisions as well on uh, at sunrise uh, on the thirty-first of July. And That's how it went? Yeah, well, on the whole, if I summarise it quickly, not 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 too bad. Um, Start I mean, at the top. The top, great, right. really good. Top, really good. Yeah. So the, the the far kind of left flank of the British Army uh, adjoining the French is the Guards Division. Um, all, right. all my well, old
1: Ivorians. They...
2: Yeah, uh, red uniforms and bearskin hats. Yeah, no, not quite, but... Um... No, exactly
1: those outfits. No, they weren't. <laughs> and next to them, you've got the poor Welsh division, which have finally been stuck back together after Mammoths Wood on the Somme.
2: Yeah, but this is this is actually an important kind of bit of ground for the Welsh as well, because you do have 38th division, 38th Welsh division, uh, and they happen to be attacking alongside the the, the battalion of the Welsh guards, uh, in in the guards division as well and there's victoria crosses up there and and although uh well the guards fight brilliantly actually I, i'm going to take nothing away from uh, the yeah. guards they've managed to get across the canal a couple of days uh, that that runs that's the thing so the isa the
1: the the, the, the canal was supposed to be a nightmare and they had like they had made crossing pads and they had train and everything and then a couple of days before the germans just buggered off
2: from the yeah canal they yeah, off from the canal bank. So, so the guards hopped over the other side, and there, there was a bit of a worry that their kind of supporting units might be cut off. But they, but they bodged these bridges with matting and all sorts of stuff, and they managed to, uh, they managed to get going very much on time. The guards um, stuck to their creeping barrage. They're protected from, This is the thing that the artillery fires ahead. Um, of the of the soldiers and uh, the the attacking troops follow up to it as closely as they can. Point being that the Germans don't have time um, to to get out and man their machine guns uh, before the infantry are on top of them. And this worked really well for the Guards. Um, the, for thirty eighth Welsh Division they almost lost it there's a there's a, a couple of points where it seems to be getting away from them and you've got some you've got some company commanders who drive their men on hard uh, and uh, manage to keep up to it just about going in short rushes uh, but these two um these two divisions managed an advance of 1800 yards uh, or so uh, and captured Pilkin village really really good um next core down either maxie's 18 core um, 51st highland division uh, met some pretty stiff resistance actually he didn't quite get across the, the river which was their target until sort of later in the day uh the steam beak was a muddy little ditch really but um but it, it was an obstacle uh they did take quite a few prisoners moving through the outpost zone uh though and made some made some decent progress that's as did 39th division to their south and they occupied st julian uh village uh, they were helped out by tanks um there were there were a few tanks on the battlefield um, it's the, you, you see them kind of piecemeal, like two tanks going forward, um, and, uh, and and maybe covering the infantry. Uh, or squashing some barbed wire, and that that certainly happened in in the case of the 39th Division. Um, it, moving further south, uh, 55th Division also had a couple of tanks in support, got got a foothold east of that muddy ditch, the Steambeak, uh, and captured a couple of farms with uh, with some prisoners as well. There's a really famous uh, man involved in this, actually, uh, Noel Shabass um if you if people would have heard of him i'm sure he's the man in the in the in the first world war who was awarded a uh, victoria cross and bar this is his and bar action his second victoria cross um and he's oh, i've got his um, citation here actually for most conspicuous bravery and devotion to duty when in action uh the, he was medical officer um, for the uh, Liverpool Scottish uh, course. Though severely wounded early in the action whilst carrying a wounded soldier to the dressing station, Captain Chavas refused to leave his post and for two days not only uh, continued to perform his duties, but in addition, went out repeatedly under heavy fire to search for and attend to the wounded who were lying out. Uh, During these searches, although practically without food during this period, worn with fatigue and faint with his wound, he assisted to carry in a number of badly wounded men over heavy and difficult ground. By his extraordinary energy and inspiring example, he was instrumental in rescuing many wounded who would otherwise undoubtedly have succumbed under the bad weather conditions this devoted and gallant officer, Subsequently, died of his wounds. Um, so real bravery being shown uh, throughout. Uh, 15th Division to their south made some decent progress, uh, got rid of a, a nasty strong point in Freisenberg again with the help of some tanks. And then it starts getting muddier because we're on the sort of southern end of Fifth Army's. Um, uh, uh, actions here and you've got some great units uh, I know we, we've done a podcast about the Somme and talked about uh, 30th and 18th division, they're pretty much the only divisions that made, made did really well on the opening day of the Somme, they're down here, they've got really really tough tasks uh, and their task is to capture the high ground at Gellieveldt now, they do manage to get onto it. They bite the nose off the high ground, do make some really tough progress, but because it's so valuable, of course, the Germans know it's valuable uh, as well. So they concentrate artillery onto it and there are really very heavy casualties uh, there. So progress slim, but some progress still. Now, if you compare this, that oh, there's counterattacks that follow, but, but essentially the, the gains largely get held on too. Um, if you compare this day and the kind of days that follow with the opening day of the Somme Offensive, you've got to say this is not too bad, actually. This is, you know, we're talking about broadly an advance of around about 3,000 yards uh, across the front. Um, some valuable ground taken, certainly Pilcom uh, is, is, is on a slight rise, and that's pretty valuable. But also getting up onto uh, the edge of the Gellier Belt Plateau, pretty valuable as well. Um, casualties? much, much slighter than, than the Somme. We're talking about 30,000 or so British casualties and at least that many German casualties, of which about, about 6,000 were prisoners. They managed to get about 6,000 Germans back through the cages. So on the whole, we're not talking about a disastrous day, really, really tough, ho- horrible, kind of hard series of days of fighting, but it's a horrible war. Yeah. Um, it,
1: and yet the guards are the only ones it's ostensibly that have got pretty much... They've got four coloured lines, all of them, to achieve, and the red line is the last one, and the only ones to sort of get near the red line are the guards. Um, you mentioned the high ground at Gellivolt, which is the Gellivolt Plateau, and this is going to become the sticking point for, like, the next 20 minutes probably, isn't it?
2: Well, yeah, it's so valuable. It's it's the kind of... It's the southern edge of this high ground that which runs off... Uh, uh, to the to the east of of Ypres. And, and without getting up to Gellyville you ain't going to get Passchendaele, you ain't going to get the Ridgeline line, and so without it, it yeah. it's nothing.
1: And the issue here, um, you can just finish off this bit, take us to like the fourth of August. The issue is, it starts pissing with rain, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, and that's actually not uncommon. I mean, the part that you know, Haig's really concerned in July when when the you know Goff and the French army commander uh, are both saying, oh, we need to delay, we're not quite ready. Well, actually, there's a history of pissing rain in August in Flanders. You know, early summer, you'll you'll get a bit uh, of rain. Uh, Haig knows it; he's dead worried about it, and so he wants everyone to get a move on. They can't, so um, he ends up with delays uh, and a late later start than he wanted. Uh, and then, sure enough, on cue, the weather.
1: I'll take over for a bit. I'm not going to dwell too much on this. So I kind of I. I don't know if you guys agree. Um, I hope Holmes does because we wrote a book together on this, and this is what I said in both our names. I kind of split this battle into three sections. You've got the beginning, which is kind of like a sensible, if not very sad and costly attempt to win the war in 1917. You've got then, because as I'm about to explain, it all it all goes wrong. Then you've got the bunny hops in the middle. And then you've got the complete shit show, which finishes it off. And so to take us to the end of the first section, uh, you have it. And this is already descending into farce a bit, isn't it, guys? Because you have this awful weather and the ground not drying out. So you get this fall of rain that sort of goes. So the initial throws of this battle go up to the 4th of August. or that's where we put them. Um, We kind of like the first couple of days while they're sort of settling down again and digging in and figuring out what they're going to do next. Um, and it just rains and rains and rains. And actually, Haig warns Goth to be patient and wait for just two to three days of good weather to dry the ground out a bit before you try to go forward again. We've used the word thruster. He's a thrusting general and he doesn't listen. Um, he's not really interested. He doesn't do caution, Goth, does he? And sometimes that's great. And I guess when you're picking a guy to lead this offensive, you're like, boom, yeah, that's our man. He ain't going to say no, um, but perhaps he should have done. So what he does is rather like we talked about, didn't we, with the someone, about the fact that you then have to decide whether you go, you keep pushing at where you've been successful. So which in this instance is up near the French and the guards and the Welsh, or whether you try and niggle away at the stuff that's gone wrong. They kind of mess around at West Howick and Langmark, don't they? Which are two sticking points that haven't gone according to plan. And they do this in atrocious weather and really in a piecemeal piecemeal way. August in this battle really gets on my nerves because I don't see, I don't know if you got guys, tell me if you agree. I don't see how Goth thought this was ever going to work in August. Well,
2: no, you've got these streams that run across the battlefield um and as y- y- soon as you shell an area of ground heavily as y- y- as they clearly had done you shatter the water courses around there and it doesn't need to be a huge amount of rain necessarily because the natural flow of the stream is just going to is just going to flood the ground and we can get all geological uh but you about mentioned it.
1: the steambeck i mean this is basically exploded at the time of this battle because it's full of water and the ground is messed up and it can't drain
3: and also uh, they're sort of they're a cross between streams and a very small river as well they're not streams yeah. as we would imagine you know a couple of foot high a few inches deep they are two some places two or two yeah. meters or so wide and quite deep and, and you're also,
1: also uh, uh, sorry Holmes I was just going to say as well um the fact that you have to remember that this ground is basically like sea level or under already
3: well also I know, I know Lockie just mentioned about the fact that you know they've been smashed up but as um Professor Peter Dorn, who I understand is a great, fan, great friend of the show, as he always points out you as know. well, that, you know, <laughs> the soil in fantasy is clay as well at that bit. So that the drainage with that on its own is going to cause problems.
1: Yeah. So they go bashing away um, into August and it doesn't go well. And Haig loses it with Gough and thinks, um, I can't go on like this. So essentially, one thing we haven't mentioned, because it's boring and because we don't, I say we on behalf of all of us, don't like Lord George, is the fact that the government had decided, hadn't they, that, is, does anyone want to challenge that? Does anyone want to say
2: they're a no.
1: Fan? no, carry on. Um, <laughs> right, brilliant. So what they've done, the government has said, well, we're not having a repeat of the song. We're not having that. So we're going to reserve the right At any point, if this offensive looks like it's not going to plan or if it's like it's wasting lives, the government reserve the right to cut it off and make you stop. And then they promptly all go on holiday and do nothing while this is playing out, which they have to take some responsibility for as far as I'm concerned, because they do nothing in the course of the next three months so August sort of transpires into this complete mess and one one person I did want to mention because Holmes and I did do a book on this with Johnny Dyer as well and one person that really got our attention and who gets a lot of visitors actually, is Arthur Conway Young, isn't it? And this is because, um, and the other two as tour guides will know this because I bet they've pointed him out to lots and lots of people and it's because his family chose, and it's a very rare, is it the only instance of an anti-war sentiment on a Commonwealth war graves headstone?
2: I don't recall seeing many about. No, so Mm
1: -hmm. he's part of this. Uh, 16th of August is one of the last sort of, large-scale stupid attempts to try and make progress in these awful conditions Um, and he's part of the Ulster division which is another division that's kind of been pieced back together after taking a really big hit on the Somme. They were at Teatvale on the opening day of the Somme and got nowhere um, and he's killed in this and His uncle wrote this letter, didn't he? And we quoted it where he just said his nephew was lost to them. He wrote to the war office and he said that he'd been told he died on or shortly after the 16th of August 1917 in an abortive offensive two days after he'd come out the trenches dead, tired and weary. He went on to condemn the circumstances, no doubt furnished by other officers in letters of condolence. And he said, no wonder things went wrong on that day. If the other men were in a similar condition, a fine reward for coming all the way to Japan to fight for the old country. Um, his father was a newspaper editor there and that's what he did. He sailed home to join the army. And his uh, headstone actually says, sacrifice to the fallacy that war can end war, which is exactly on a much more philosophical level, exactly what World War I was supposed to be. So August, a mess, and Hay calls time on Gough. And he goes for Plumer instead, doesn't he? He decides um, Plumer's more measured, like um, slower attempt and the way he operates is more likely to chip away gradually at the Galevelt Plateau than just continually slamming men into a nightmare. So he makes the switch. Um, and I. this is phase two of the battle starting now. And Holmes is going to take us on now because um, I call them and I've even done a cartoon mm. version of Plumer with ears and a fluffy tail. I call it his bunny hops because that's essentially what he's going to do, isn't it, Holmes?
3: Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, Goff had sought big results over a broad front, whereas Plumer intended to launch a series of more focused, smaller offensives, each across a narrower front. Um the depth of the objectives would be shorter than the previous attacks by Gough, as this would allow attackers to push forward quickly and consolidate gains by digging in and preparing defences sooner. One of the issues in the first phase that we just talked about was the ferocity and the success of the German counterattacks. Um, the, the hope was, with this more focused approach, that it would give the attacking troops more time to dig in and cons- consolidate their position. It also meant that the German counter-attackers had much much greater distance across cross across the ground. This um,
1: is, isn't it? This is bite and hold. This is instead of charging and trying to achieve everything at once, bite a little bit of your objective off, bring everybody up, set up again, make sure you've held it and then bite again.
3: Yeah. So the objectives in the attacks have been reduced to those within a short distance of our line, as it was impossible for men to go forward over any long distance. And his object was to spare the troops to the utmost poss- possible degree whilst at the same time complying with um the orders from ghq now the other advantage of this as well when you were always within range of your artillery yeah you didn't have to move the artillery up so the artillery could always always provide covering fire and pluma realized the importance of artillery so he increased the number of guns available he pulled in large numbers of them from um seven corps and the third and the fourth armies um and on the 20th of September, he had a total of 1,295 guns and howitzers, which would be positioned in front, front of the Gallaudet Plateau with one gun for every five feet of front. And at this point, that was the largest collection of guns gathered in the war date. As we already mentioned, the capture of the Gallaudet Plateau was vital. and So every resource was used to achieve this objective. Um, to enable to plan as effectively as possible, Bloomer asked for a three-week delay um, during this time, planks were put down to make makeshift roads, and duckboard tracks were laid everywhere to assist in the movement of troops. Railways were also extended, and also he laid deep-line telephone lines, which is something Goth never bothered to do during the first phase of this. Um, he also made sure that all the gun- guns were positioned pre- correctly, and they had necessary gun pits and on platforms, etc.
1: So just to um, tell people the deep lying telephone-wise is because the instant artillery start going at each other, if you've only got your telephone lines across the top, it's the age-old World War I issue in battle, isn't it, guys? Communications, because the shells hit your wires, your telephones are buggered, and nobody can talk to each other. As soon as the men are out of sight, you've got basically no idea what's going on beyond what you can get from runners and air observation. And they did try lots of different things, but... It strikes me as slightly obvious to do the telephone wire thing before the offensive starts.
2: Yeah, God knew it as well. Yeah, No no excuse, really. I suppose the other difference with this one as well was the, the barrages
3: that started before the attack. Instead of having a massive one that built up and built up and built up, this was quite subtle in that they got to work just targeting enemy batteries and strong points, such as pillboxes and machine gun nests. So it looked like they were just carrying out routine artillery strikes rather than building up to something yeah. that was going to signal an offensive
1: and yet yeah, this is the beginning of this targeted stuff is what's going to win the war in 18 isn't it it's going to by destroying literally hunting down and destroying as many artillery batteries as you can of the enemies it's going to make your life easier and it's what's going to help the allies advance to victory so although it's like it, there's, it's kind of two-pronged at this time they're still feeling their way around aren't they
2: they still need observed fire that's that's the the one thing they do need registration they're working towards they're getting close to that kind of dark art of you know getting your accurate maps and topography and decent compass bearings or whatever bearings you're using plus you know meteorological conditions and all that all all this other other stuff sound
1: raging stuff's coming yeah
2: wear of the gun barrels you know uniformity of shell size all those kind of things that will affect your artillery accuracy and you know by the end of the year they can you know without firing any registration shots they can poof, you know hit a you know or get close to hitting a, a strong point from a few miles away um, just with just predictive fire but they're not there yet so I do, I do still need to do some ranging yep so, so the
3: first of Plumer's battles was known as the battle of I, I don't know I'd always known it as the battle of the Menin Road but now every time I've looked into it now it's the battle of the Menin Road Ridge which sounds like to me I've never heard of before no
1: but... me neither
2: uh battle's nomenclature committee i think is men in road ridge is
3: it well, yeah. well we can go with that tonight but that i'm was, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna pull the
2: official history now
3: that was planned for the that <laughs> was planned no tw- out while you carry on battle was planned for the 20th of september and on that day actually they had twice as many guns as the 31st of july over half the front and they had twice as many troops over half the front as well so you can see Plumer is trying to massively top focuses resources over a much shorter area, which I hoped that would lead to success. So the attack was going to take place across an eight-mile front. Um, the direct attack on Gallabert plateau would be undertaken across a 4,000-yard front by the 41st and 23rd Divisions and the 1st and 2nd Australian Divisions. He objectives were either side of the Manning Road, which ran east out of Ede and included non-Boshen Wood, Glencourse Wood, Inverness Cops, Polygon Wood and the pillboxes that made up Tower Hamlet. For the first attack, Plumer was only intending for an initial advance of between 1,000 and 1,500 yards. He'd limited his intentions to the furthest distance calculated that his men could reach while still being protected by the artillery.
1: That doesn't sound like much. It sounds like common sense. But this is novel to go, I'm only going as far as the gun protection goes and not giving them anything else to go for. That hasn't been done regularly.
3: Well, also, they actually gave orders saying no matter what tactical opportunities show themselves, ignore them and, and dig in. Whereas I think when you at the start when we were talking about Goths' fourth line, that was basically if you hit all you, all three of the, the first three lines, have a go at that if you want type of thing, wasn't yeah. it? So there's a complete difference to this this approach here. And then as we said earlier, by limiting the distance of each step, Pluma was hoping to avoid wastage of the previous few months. The artillery could continue to provide cover from their existing positions, and the German counterattack troops would have much more ground to cover, which would give the British much more time to dig in, and the Germans would be exposed to the British artillery barrage, which were already in position, and knew where, knew where they were aiming. I guess the other thing to point out by now is that the weather had improved. It stopped raining. Yeah, but,
1: we could benefit from
3: that, yeah. Yeah, in fact, in certain places it was so dry now that it caused problems. Artillery observers... They had their view obscured by the smoke and dust on the battlefield. And in in the build-up to this offensive, um, clouds of dust thrown up in the air by large numbers of troops moving around could give their positions away. On the actual day of the attack, there was a slight bit of rain overnight, but the attack started at 5.40 um, after another massive artillery barrage that I think was even bigger than the one on the 31st. The advance progressed at 25 yards a minute. I think as well by this time, if we go back to the Somme, the, the difference in how the infantry were told to act could be we can highlight that as well. Yeah. Infantry now, rather than on the summer, they just got out the trenches and walked in a big line or a series of lines. Yeah, we do offenses. worms
1: now, don't we?
3: Yeah, now they're in small platoons, and all the platoons, each they're all specialists. So you had sort of rifle specialists, grenade specialists, rifle grenade specialists, and then machine gun carriers. And they were trying to move quickly, as you say, in a sort of you know snaking pattern between the shell holes. Mm. which is a big difference to what had gone before. He deliberately kept back 25% of troops in reserve. So he had something to fall back on should he need it.
1: Yeah, I think the important thing is, so the weather does improve and sort of tactical things have been learned, but Plumer's approach works. It's, this is a success as far as World War One battles goes.
2: Apart from yeah. anything else, in terms of inflicting loss on the Germans, it's it's great because their their counterattacks have become so predictable by this stage. You know, the, the British attack, the Germans counterattack with some with some with a bit of an artillery bombardment and um, and trained counter-attack troops. Well, all right, we, we take a small bite, as you say, they've got further to go, and then we absolutely pulverize it. That's that's the that's the plan from that point. So German losses start climbing hugely.
3: Yeah, on the on the first day, the Germans launched eleven counterattacks. One had a minor effect that wasn't successful. The rest were all, the rest were all completely repulsed. Um, so the first day was pretty much a success, almost across the entire front. Um, the Fifth Army advanced a thousand yards across a, five, a, a, a advanced a thousand yards, and the Second Army one thousand five hundred, and we'd finally got our, we got a, a hold on the part of the Gulliver Plateau, which is the thing that had been eluding us, eluding us all along. So
1: it worked. Um, does he get another three weeks to do this again?
3: No, that finished on the twenty. That the Battle of Menin Road or the Battle of Menin Road Bridge, whichever one we're going for, finished on the twenty fifth of September, um, which was followed up on the twenty sixth of September by the Battle of Polygon Wood.
1: Yeah. So, I, this for me, I'm like, mm. so what you'll see with Pluma's Bunny hot, because we'll go on to the third one with Beth in a minute, is that despite the fact that he proves that if you wait and prepare, he doesn't get the time to wait and prepare. The time comes down and down as he's doing them, doesn't it? So tell us about Polygon Wood.
3: Polygon Wood is similar, actually. I mean, if you, look, if you look at the geography from it, it's not, the objectives aren't that far away from what they were in the Battle of Men in Road Ridge, or Battle of Men in Road. Um,
1: I never get this right, though. So they're now, where they are on Gellivelle Plateau after Men in Road Ridge, are they basically where the first objective was on the opening day in July?
2: I, I I that's know what, That's, what, that's, that's what they hoped for, yeah. yeah.
3: But I mean, without going into too much, it was basically, it, although he didn't have much time to prepare, it was still another pretty much brilliant success. And that's despite they, the
1: fact that the Germans threw a spanner in the works in one sector, didn't they?
3: Wasn't that because they, they just happened to be counter-attacking at the same time, purely yeah. by coincidence? So
1: as, as the Australian, was it Australians? As the Australians kicked off in one part, they got up and found Germans coming at them because they were attacking at the same time. So even despite that, it is Australians, right? Or am I just imagining this?
3: I think it is Australian. They both sort of ended up in no man's land and were quite surprised to see each other there, as far as I can remember.
1: Or is that Bruce? Oh, I'm confusing myself now. My bit, <laughs> <laughs> like, that's my line. Don't steal it. But yeah, there are some clashes. There's a counter definitely on the 25th um, slash 26 as they're as they're starting this second bunny hop. But it doesn't impact them too much, does it?
3: No, not no, not at all. Um, but I mean, again, without it's the same sort of thing. A small. It was a you know small front. They we're looking to only only go, you know, capture a small part of the, the German line. And it was another success. Most of the key objectives were taken, including Polygon Wood. Um, I think the thing to highlight in these, despite the success, there were quite a lot of British casualties. So in Polygon Wood, it was just over 15,000. I've got a feeling for Battle of Menin Road, it was 20,000. So they are a success, but they're not without a cost. But at the same time, I think it's Lockheed mentioned, I think the estimate that we took at least the equivalent amount in... Uh, German casualties. Okay.
1: And then the weather goes again, but they decide to go with bunny hop number three, which is where Beth comes in, even though we've just done like a massive spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um,
4: Yeah. So as has as been elaborated on already, you know, these bunny hops, the bite and hold, it is something that has proved um, successful, but as we've, we've noted the, Time that Pluma has to prepare or that the, they have to prepare in that area does get less and less. Um the third bunny hop is the Battle of Brudzinder, which is on the 4th of October 1917. Um, again, trying to take, you know, we're still working away at the Gellevel Plateau. Um we are intent on getting that plateau because, as has been mentioned, without having that plateau. Without having the ridges surrounding Ypres, we cannot then take Passchendaele and then onto onto the railway lines, those key important parts. We we have to take that plateau before we can go any further. Um, and as we've said, this is when the rain starts again. So where you think of, you know, when you see pictures of, and this is Passchendaele, this is Belgium, this is the First World War, with mud, you know, up to your knees and um, people sinking into the mud, you know, the famous pictures of like the horses um, falling, is so drowning into the mud. This is where it really starts to come into fruition because not only at this point in time has the rain turned, they are now also fighting over territory that has been shelled for months and months and months um, with with the best of intentions. This is a ground that is completely churned up. It's, as we've mentioned crisscrossed with streams rivers that have completely lost their banks there is no drainage in the area this is a a literal quagmire um this this third bunny hop of, of brood was was vital as we said to taking the plateau and it is again another successful but use of the bite and hold um it's mainly it starts from around the Polygon Wood area at its most southern part of the offensive, moves up around through Zonnebeck and towards um, the village of Passchendaele in the in the distance. Um, if you are in that area, part of what is taken on the fourth of October by the Australians, one of the Australian divisions, Third Australian Division, is the set where Tynecott Cemetery and Memorial is now. So that attack is to, again, we're taking it in bites. We're going to work our way up this ridge because if any of you have been to that area, you will know if you stand somewhere like Tynecock right at the top of the cemetery, you can see from Mars. that, that high ground is it's such a vantage point. It's so important. And they need to work their way up this ridge so that they can have the best positions they have come the end of um, autumn into winter. So we've got a variety of different divisions attacking. We've got like we've got the fifth division, twenty first division in the south, all the way around to the Anzac Corps. So all of the Australian, like the first and second and third Australian divisions, fighting, and my true loves of um, uh, dominions, uh, dominion troops, and New Zealanders. They're also fighting from the fourth of October as well, and their objectives were, as an average, um, about. Some were about a thousand twelve hundred yards deep some went right up to over two thousand yards for the objectives but it is in these small chunks that can be managed you've got the first objective the red line and you've got the final objective eventually which is the blue line which is two to four hundred yards after the red line for most of these units and it goes well I mean it It's, you know, obviously it's far more complex than just saying, yeah, it went great. They did this. They did that. It's far more complex than that. Um, It starts early in the morning, the offensive, um, as all of these offensives do. Um, And it is at this time with the it's for the fifth division as well. Um that's what who uh, Alex has already mentioned, uh, with my spoiler alert, um, that they do just happen that the Germans were intending to launch their own counter-attack on the 4th of October themselves. And they by quite by coincidence happened to come across um the German, the 19th Reserve Division in No Man's Land, basically. And I think I can I can only imagine what that must have been like.
1: From what I heard, yeah. I remember it was all misty and they were like. Who are those guys? I don't know. Who's that? Who's that? I don't know. Is that us or is that them or what's happening?
0: When you're ready to pop the
1: question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door.
0: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
4: Yeah, and, and I, could, I could just imagine some of the faces thinking, hang on, is, are those actually, you look at them like concentrating, is that really what I think it is? And then thinking, oh, bloody hell. You know, it's yeah. when they realise what's actually coming towards them.
1: Um, I'll say if anyone wants to see one of the Germans, that um, one of them was treated by British medics when he was wounded coming across, and he's just up from Nelly Spindler. So if you are in Listenhut and you go left, face face Nelly, and then walk to the left, there's a clump of German graves, and there's a chap called Richard Genshoff there that was treated um, because he was one of this this lot that clashed with them
0: in a sudden flash it all comes clear it's a eureka moment an epiphany hi i'm marcus smith host of the constant wonder podcast the world offers marvel meaning and mystery around every single corner in nature art science culture history we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids experience the thrill of transformative encounter We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts.
1: First Troops at the beginning of this.
4: So and that's, you know, always a good point to remember, isn't it? We are, we do, we're very good at saying, oh, the British, oh, the Australians. But, you know, there's those stories as well, isn't there, that we uh, must not forget to to tell as well. Um, When, with this attack, you know, as I said, it is obviously like any attack, in the First World War, it is not all sunshine and daisies, and it's not it. it it's a battle. It will be gruesome. It will be tough. Um, for the majority of the divisions involved, the Australians, New Zealanders, Twenty First Division, Fifth Division, they take almost all of their objectives, if not all of them. Some of them do take all of their objectives within the first couple of hours. You know, they've made their way. Up that the corner of that Gelleveld plateau, up towards the ridge, up towards what is the village of Passiondale eventually. Um, and they managed to get into their first line objectives, the red line, and ho- hold those positions. Um, the Germans do an obviously counter-attack, you know, that's they bring in the Eingraft divisions who attack in number and in high concentration of force, and they manage to to hold their positions they it it is when you go into it in in more depth and obviously we don't have the necessary time really to go into the exact depth of what needs to be done for for these battles but you know there's we've got advances of in some cases most of them advance over a thousand yards some a bit under there are some divisions as well that managed to advance over almost double that almost all the way to two thousand yards they um, and that's particularly for third Australian Division who have made their way up through that uh, through where Tynecott Cemetery is now obviously that key key location through all of those bunkers, the machine gun nests, the barbed wire, you know, those really strong defensive positions that the Germans have created for themselves. They make their way through them. Um obviously by this point as well, this is where because the rain has again started, again, just reiteration of the fact that the ground that they are now advancing over is becoming increasingly difficult to follow behind and from the 4th of october the success of the 4th of october the relative success it's you know it's it's a good offensive for the british and the australians what it it works well however but it
1: changed the end of section two of the battle, which is the it first is. Thing. And yeah. unfortunately, we now moved on. I just I, there is no other name for this. Section three of the battle, third battle of it, is is the October, November shit show. Isn't it? Beth? It is. Beth?
4: And I mean, I can I can see why as, as a as a layperson who has never been in the military, will not serve in the military. I can see why you would want to um, exploit your successes. Oh, you know. this is just like the Somme now they've
1: realized they will not end the war
4: yeah 19- it's got to the it's got to the point where it's not going to happen so um, it,
1: let's get the best positions for next year which yeah. means at the moment that we're not in a great position because we're sort of midway across and we need we need to finish off for the year that's the justification behind it isn't it
4: yeah absolutely and you know they're for most of the for some of the positions where they're sat, you know, like they're halfway up, up the ridge, the Passiondale Ridge. um Some of them are further back. As you say, it's not a comfortable p- position for them to be in. They need to. They've got. They've got to improve where they are, and it's it's just it has to happen fairly quickly because, as we've said, we know the weather conditions. We know the ground type. Winter's coming. If you don't, if they didn't sort it, then in October they were going to still be there in. February, March. So it had to happen. We're moving forward. They're not having the time to prepare for these, for the coming battles. And the next battle that happens uh, before the British is the Battle of Pole Capel, which is, again, slightly further along. So from, if you're looking at Ypres and you've got a map, Polygon Wood is about east-ish and you move your way around to like northeast ish. And again, slightly further more to like north, northeast is like around the area of where Polcapel is. So We've we're on in the rates
1: of Roulette, which is which what Lockie mentioned. Yeah,
4: absolutely, absolutely. So we're still in this same, same sort of area. We're not miles and miles away. It's always trying to improve the position. Obviously, what's happening is with the ground, obviously, as we're moving forward, you know, with these successes of. Polygon Wood, Men in Road, Broods uh, brood in the artillery is having to move forwards to keep up so that they can continue to support with creeping barrages and so on. And because the ground has spent months and months being shelled, the water issues, as we've already mentioned, the issues of the ground is getting harder and harder for the artillery and any sort of supply chains and so on to keep up, to be able to um carry on in these battles particularly as well as we say as the time frames are shortening. So we're looking at the battle of Polkapel on the 9th of October. We're well well into now this period of awful rain. We are now firmly in autumn. But it, it is important to get those positions. And also as well, there is still a sense of, there still do need to be some sort of fighting. There is still is an initiative to be had. Um, when we know that, you know, later on we've got the battle of Cambrai in November as well further South and the French are fighting as well. Like we've got the battle of um, La Malmaison in at the end of October as well. It is the onus is on the allies to keep the fighting going. Um, the 9th of, of October, for want of a better word, I mean, I don't know if any of you disagree with me, but it's, it's pretty, pretty dire.
1: It's, you know, you, we've got... It's, it's a hideous failure, isn't it?
4: It is. It's awful. You know, we've got all of these troops. And this is where, like, obviously we all know, well, some, you know, of my love for the North Midland Division, but the South Midland Division are involved at the Battle of Pol Capel and also they're in Battle of Broodhinder as well. And it's, it is just an awful, awful... You know, words can't mean. It's,
2: it's, it's, that, it's that shortening. of it's, it's the desire to try and achieve that breakthrough. They've shortened the kind of operational tempo, haven't they? They're, they're, yeah. they're trying to, to go quicker and quicker each time um, without the kind of necessary regard for the conditions which have got way, way worse yeah um and you know it, it's not just a, a simple fact that okay it's raining so it's difficult for the infantry to run through the mud it is that's a really really big problem but you know it's so much of what you've built your attack on is the artillery isn't it what is not it What stabilizing a gun platform in that kind of conditions is not impossible they're actually hitting a target on any kind of no it's just not going to happen so your int- artillery is less oh plus everything's just muddy isn't it so you, every time oh. you get a shell into t- a gun you've got to clean it so it yeah. just reduces your rate of fire and e- e- everything just works against you and
4: it's and it's just it's continuing on from that it's like a, it's a different kind of mud isn't it we all know that mud you know if you have been on a rainy Horrible, stormy, wet day in the brassalian It is just a different kind of mud than it's anything great. else.
1: You put your foot in it and you leave your shoe behind when you try yeah. and do
2: it. It's different. Yeah. It's different to the Som mud, isn't it? Because the Som mud will stick to it. So you, you, you put your, you put your boot in the in the ground on the Som, and you get a layer of mud about three inches thick around your boot. And then you put your next foot in, you get another, you get a three layer of mud around that. And then you put your boot down again, and now you've got six inches of mud around your boot. And, and but it's different in each. Because it's sloppy, mm. and you and you'll you'll sink It's like sandy, sloppy stuff. Mm.
1: I'm just gonna read you an account. It's one of my old Etonians. He's with the Household Battalion up round Pole Capel, um, and he's quite vivid with his writing. And basically. They get given their orders right at the last minute and he says 24 items to be read, digested and explained to the men before dark and no one allowed to stand up, only run from one hole to another. There's no trenches here. They're all cowering in wet shell holes. And he says shellfire was taking its toll. While he was called to a conference, he was in a mud smothered pillbox crowned with a dozen or so officers. And they were told that their objective was a cluster of German defences uh, defenses known as Riquette Farm. It rounded off affairs and then became uncomfortable wooden partings with people saying things like, good luck, old chap, and take care of yourself, and the very best of luck. And they, <laughs> as cheerful as they tried to be, they knew they would never again stand in the same room as a complete group. And then he says, then began the most awful night I remember. It was pitch dark, impossible to distinguish any landmark, and no one knew the ground, and such ground. It is quite impossible to describe the shell holes, craters, and such being beyond belief. Dreadful. So he's really religious. And throughout this nightmare spell, he just basically said, I sat there and I prayed, trying to calm himself down into some kind of acceptance that he's got to try and carry out this obscene thing the next day. Um, The journey to the assembly point was a disaster. They were struggling along in a downpour when a shell landed right in the middle of them and wounded nearly half a dozen, including the stretcher bearers. And he just says, it seemed that the acme of hell on earth had come. No stretcher bearers, ten wounded men in the wet groaning for help. The company all mixed up. Oh, the rain. We tried to dish the rum and water out to these frozen, soaked, tired men. Meanwhile, I was trying to get other men to carry the worst of the wounded who could not walk. One poor man, I remember, kept yelling for help and I could not do anything until the stretchers came back. And it was doubtful if they ever would it's like
4: this is what the conditions are like in this battle i feel like that that uh, that you what you've just read is if you said to someone what do you think the conditions were like in the first world war that is what Mm. i think most people would have as their image you know it's just this complete level of what the hell is going on um and just the poor conditions that are Are happening at that time it's just a complete yeah show as alex would call it it
1: is (laughs) no other word for it is there so this utterly fails on the 9th of october and Mm. yet three days later they decide and this is where passiondale comes into play Mm. and this is where your poor new zealanders get absolutely (laughs) hammered
4: my poor new zealanders like they go halfway literally all the way around the world to die in a muddy field in belgium (laughs) um (laughs) You know it's it is you know it, they're not it's not just the New Zealanders who are fighting on the first on the twelfth of October It is the first battle of Passchendaele, as we can we're now officially into the Battle at Passchendaele. it's fine we're there we're there we don't need to keep saying homes. Breathe, breathe, breathe we're allowed to move on now um and it's not just the it's just not not just the New Zealanders as much as I would like to think that it is we have as we say you know you've got a lot of actually very similar divisions fighting still. Again, you know, we've got like the 14th, 49th West Riding Division. They'd been in the area as well. They had also fought at the Battle of Polkipel. um You know, so it's, they are troops that are well, well adjusted to the, to the, to what's been going on, but not necessarily well prepared for it. You know, who would I be under A quote
1: about what they thought when they arrived.
4: Yeah, if you've got one.
1: Yeah, so I'm just being ultimately lazy and just pulling stuff from all the books, what I wrote. (laughs) What I wrote. (laughs) This is from the Passchendaele book we did. And this is when they arrived. One of them says, uh, so I put, you can only stare in shock and disgust at the panorama unfolding before them. And he said, ridge after ridge, the wilderness stretched back. All the beautiful woods were dead and the skeletons of trees stood gaunt and stark against the star line, skyline. The villages were heaps of filthy rubble. The gentle streams that had meandered through smiling valleys were flattened into horrible bogs and slimy quagmires. The green fields where the poppies had grown redly in the summertime were a wide expanse of dull and dreary brown. For mile after mile, shell hole touched shell hole, with there here and there a great gaping crater torn by a mine explosion. One could hardly follow the old line of German trenches, so ploughed and torn was all the earth. Line after line, their pillboxes crowned every height, swept every slope, entlarded every approach.
4: Yeah. I mean, it's just uh, it's incomprehensible, really, isn't it? But this this main attack, obviously, as I said, there are other units there, but the New Zealanders are with the Third Australian Division as well. Um, they are the main get back to the thrusting um they are the main thrust of the attack on the 12th of October Um uh, part of the problem is that they well they have problems before they even start you know we've talked about the artillery not being able to move forward and provide support you know I haven't got the numbers immediately to hand but there's the numbers of how many um of the guns they've got for polygon wood versus then when you've got how they've got for broods in the and then first battle of Passchendaele and the numbers are decreasing because they can't bring the amount forward to provide the support so they're already on the back foot without the potentially the level of artillery support they were expecting um there'd been a slight miscommunication between the 9th and the 12th as well where um it was believed that the attack on the 9th had gone further than it actually had um so Rather than being about 1,500 yards away from their first-line objective, they were 2,500 yards away from their first-line objective. So they're having to encounter another 1,000 yards of this territory before they need to get where they're supposed to be, their, their red line, their first objective. Um, they are from right from the off. It's the sort of almost what you would say, you know, stereotypical ideas of, of the First World War. You know, the barbed wire isn't cut. So they can't get through. So they get stuck in the masses of, of, of barbed wire. We have got these really intensely fortified German positions, as we said, you know, anyone who's seen any, you know, you've got your pillboxes, your dugouts, your concrete bunkers. They are heavily fortified machine guns with their enfilading fire crossing across each other, across no man's land and making it an absolute killing zone. Um, there's many, lots of many, many stories, but um, Alex does have one in her book of um, Second Lieutenant Arthur Talbot um, of the 2nd Canterbury Regiment, um, who at this time is 41 years old. He had been a teacher um, in a town called Temuka, which is 85 miles south of Christchurch on the South Island of New Zealand. Um, he left behind as his job as a teacher um, his younger brother had already been killed at Gallipoli as well. Um, it's So not a family. And it, it was quite well known as well in New Zealand at the time. He was an explorer and a climber. So he was actually relatively well known as well. Um, and they just, as Alex puts in her book, you know, she, she you put it quite well. So I'll have to say it. says so the New Zealanders had been tasked with overwhelming objectives over ground that was unfamiliar to them. You know, they find themselves caught in essentially a trap um there are tiny tiny gaps when they can get through they're tiny tiny gaps where they're funneled into each area locky stop it <laughs> <laughs> some of us like to be teachers pets
1: <laughs> just for those who do not have the benefit of the video locky's holding up a side that says creep at birth now um, well, he,
3: he, he wasn't exposing himself
1: this yeah. time. <laughs> this, yeah. this time. The much louder um, yeah but you're right it just it sounds like I was having a rant at that point in the book and, mm. and this does make me want to rant
4: yeah and he's just one of these men you know as well he's leading his his troops they are trying to do what's expected of them up to um eventually their objective was the graven gravenstaffel spur I, aw- I can never get that out properly um and that's because it's, that it's, it's,
3: it's got a random small s before it, hasn't
4: it? I, I ignore that. <laughs> uh, I, don't I <laughs> don't listening to this going I oh, can't. Oh, I can't oh. deal with the s's and g's together. No Flemish place
1: names. Yeah. And I, I can't remember. Is he one of the ones that just vanishes? Yeah, he
4: is. Yes. I was just. Yeah, he just. He's like so many of them. They just disappear. You know, in this in this mess of of an advance, and you know. We know why, as we've said, the positions had to be improved. We know why they needed to. But this one particularly seems very futile. And as you said, it is the worst day for the New Zealand division. You know, they are, there's particular stories, you know, of, you know, there's on the far left, you've got the third rifle brigade who are completely halted by machine gun fire and don't move anywhere much beyond their first line trenches. You've got on the right, the second brigade that they again they come up against this barbed wire that was sloped obliquely against um, the New Zealand front a few managed to get through as we all say you know they quickly killed the ones that did get through got into were stuck in shell holes any success where the where there were was any w- was limited they tried to keep pushing through so obviously this is happening throughout the day there's another push at 3 p.m in the afternoon but it was cancelled just beforehand Um, eventually they ended up back where they started Um, badly wounded troops were left lying in the mud, they couldn't be retrieved Um, of the, because this is then where the casualty numbers come in and it talks about the worst day for New Zealand being this 12th of October on that day of the 12th of October 2,700 casualties registered to that day Um, they Include about 950 who were either killed or mortally wounded. Um, 843 of those are listed as actually dying on the 12th itself, and the rest have then succumbed to their wounds further down the uh, the evacuation line in, in the days and weeks that that followed. It, it's it's one of these watershed moments for countries. You know, we all know about Vimy Ridge, and yeah, it's like. On yes. the
1: western front, it is at least. Um, so uh, we talked about. So they don't get Passiondale, do they, Beth? They don't get no. it. And if you actually, if you want to go and pay your respects to the people like Arthur Talbot, who just vanished into the mud and were never seen or heard from again. Um, There's a reason that New Zealand has its own apps on the Tynecock Memorial, has a whole little section all to itself because there are so many names Mm -hmm. to put on it. So you can go and pay your respects to him and others there. But we then move on to, I mean, so they try again, they give it a couple of weeks and they try again. And so we've talked about New Zealand and I just want to talk about Canada for the next little bit uh, we're almost at the end people don't worry um but yes it does go on this long and it is this horrible and it's not about to get any better one thing we really wanted to do for the book was highlight again canada a young country uh, was to highlight the diverse makeup of the canadian forces um they weren't they weren't all born and bred Canadians so we did one story didn't we Holmes for the 49th Canadian Infantry at the second battle of Passchendaele which starts on the 26th I think of October um where they decide to have another go because why wouldn't you when you've you've come this far already why not kill some more people this battle this end of this battle makes me really like really angry Uh, so we picked three guys in the same battalion and one was a Cree Indian or First Nation tribe member um one was british and the last one was japanese Um, and you're really going to hear me rant in a minute about what happens to him so much like the new zealanders they arrive in this nightmare scenario and they get these objectives to go and take the village of passchendaele and it's environs at the end of the month shortly after 5 50 a.m on the morning of their attack flames everywhere flashing guns burning shells um and the line on which they're assembled, including our three guys, which is Alex Decato is the Cree chap, Charles Sordon is the English chap, and Yasaku Kubadera is our Japanese chap. So the three of them are lined up with the rest of the battalion. Uh, Almost straight away, the machine gunners are put out of action. Their assembly line comes under heavy shell fire. uh, And nonetheless, they all go sprawling out of these hastily constructed, I say trenches, but do not be thinking of the big organized things that you see in museums and that. Think of an absolute nightmare of just hastily scratched in positions. Uh, Alex Decato is one of the first to vanish. and Nobody really knows what happened to him. Um, throughout the course of the day, because obviously he doesn't leave any account. But before the morning's over, he's uh, hit by a sniper. So there's enemy snipers lurking in pits and shell holes, trying to pick off the depleted battalion, which is getting nowhere near its objectives. And uh, he was originally, they buried him sort of 1500 yards west of Passchendaele with four of his countrymen in an unmarked grave. Uh, They did find his body after the war. Um, And he was identified by his name, Disc. And he's now in Passchendaele New British Cemetery. But I think more importantly for him and his beliefs, uh, since a crop, proper Cree burial did not occur in 1985, his relatives and friends performed a special ceremony that took his spirit home to Edmonton. And to
3: so I guess, like, I guess Alex, the other thing to mention about too, seeing as where we are at the moment, he was in the 1912 Olympics in Stockholm when he came sixth in something like the 5000 meters.
1: I think it was either fifth or sixth, and he had breathing difficulties, didn't he, during the race? So he was uh, he was one of the, he was one of the top athletes down the Western. Coast of the Americas, but he didn't have a good day in the final at Stockholm, which meant that uh, he didn't get the medal that everybody expected him to, I think, did he? Uh, that's yes. what I remember from it.
3: Sixth, he came. Yeah. yeah.
1: But uh, he was an excellent, world class middle distance runner. So I moved on to Charles Sorden in the book, who's 34, uh, originally from Bridlington, but in 1910, he would got so a large number of his family all decided. Um, He took his wife, his widowed mother, several of his siblings and all of their families uh, all decided to go and start a new life in Canada. Uh, Since then, he decided to completely start a new life and divorced his wife as well. But uh, he had a family and he, too, is involved in this as well. So we talked about the mud. Um, It rained overnight before the Canadians went forward on this attempt on Passchendaele. And so added to a deluge in an already deluged land uh, that couldn't feel their rifles, it was too cold and wet, they can't move. They're trying to skirt round all of the um, shell holes and pass their, another one of these streams, the Rababee, uh, struggling up towards higher levels. And somewhere along the way, Charles gets sucked down into the mud. And we've talked, didn't we, about how it was like clay and you couldn't get out of it. And, and he absolutely could not get out of it. So he had to laboriously attempt to dig himself out with his bare hands until he could drag his body back out into the open um before this is before their advance ground to a halt, a medical officer with an n c o and a stretcher team came came forward to establish an advance aid post, and he refused to go there instead, he began frantically dragging out all the other men that had become bogged down in the mud while still under fire. When he finally extricated someone who was still alive, he slung the man across his back and carried him to the nearest dressing station. He was nominated for a military medal. For that day, that sounds rather more like VC winning to me, but that's not where he got from it. And then Dera, right, this is where I get on my high horse, because a massive number of Japanese people had emigrated to Western Canada before the First World War, um, and he was one of them. And so you get a lot of Japanese people fighting in British uniform for the Canadians um in the first world war and this chap was one of them so he's actually born near mount fuji sort of southeast of tokyo and uh he'd gone and he joined this 49th battalion uh found himself in the swamp like conditions and again got sucked down into the mud and couldn't move anywhere so you th- these guys aren't even fighting the germans on this day they're just fighting to survive the conditions he digs himself out so and, He digs himself out, then he absolutely refuses to go back for medical aid, picks up his rifle and goes rushing forward again uh, because he wants to get at the enemy, apparently. Uh, Determined, showing remarkable aggression, he ignored the heavy machine gun fire and rifle fire being levelled at some surviving members of the 49th and blazed away with his rifle, showing a splendid example to all ranks of fortitude and devotion to duty. For his actions on 30th October... He was awarded the military medal. Needless to say, the Canadians do not capture Passendale on the 28th of October. They actually capture it at the beginning of November, which we won't go into massive detail on because we have rapidly outrun the time available to us and are probably boring everybody by now. But just to tell you what happened to him in later life, in December 1941, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. More than 23,000 people of Japanese origin were living in Canada by this point, and more than three quarters of them were Canadian citizens, including Yasaku Kubadera, this counted for little when concerns began to gain momentum about spies and sabotage. So the Canadians rounded up the Japanese people and said that persons of Japanese racial origin were to be removed from a hundred-mile restricted zone in British Columbia and away from the coast. The coast. So that it put, despite his service in the Great War, he's put in a concentration camp hang on, let me get this right, 965 Japanese Canadians were sent to inland to Kaslo, which is where he's sent. And he he and his wife, Chikai, were among them. Within six months, he had fallen ill, and he died almost 25 years to the day after Passchendaele of pneumonia, interned as an enemy of Canada. His wife barely outlived him. Uh, his daughter was not allowed to inherit any of his property or his business. So, actually when we looked into it, following the surrender of Japan in 1945, they were still forbidden returning to the West Coast. Instead, they were given a choice of relocating east of the Rockies or moving to Japan. In 1949, the government finally allowed people of Japanese origin to move freely within Canada and reinstated their right to vote. In 1988, they formally acknowledged the country's mistreatment of Japanese Canadians during and after the Second World War and granted compensation to survivors. And then I just rounded this off in this book and I will round off with this just because we've already talked about how we took Passchendaele in the end. Japanese Canadian soldiers fought on the Somme at Vimy Ridge, Passchendaele and up and down the Western Front during the Great War. 55 men of the original Canadian Japanese volunteer corps did not return home. 13 of them, including Kubadera, were awarded gallantry medals. A roll of honour had been produced in the aftermath of the war. When forced to leave British Columbia in 1942, one old soldier got that roll of honour out and he kept it on him. Uh, for 25 years, until the centenary of the arrival of the first Japanese immigrant was celebrated in Vancouver in 1977, and then he finally bought it home to where it belonged. And he said, a descendant of samurai, Corporal Kubota, considered returning the role of honour to be his final obligation to his comrades. He died the following year. Before doing so, he penned a poem for those who fell and translated from Japanese. It reads, although you are gone, you are not dead. Surely the setting sun will rise again for you. Your heroic spirit will live in our hearts. We take the torch from your hand to fight and carry on. So by the time the Battle of Passchendaele rolls down at the end of November slash beginning of December, Lockie, uh, they've kind of got some of the positions that they want, haven't they? Uh, but they haven't finished the war. They haven't ended the war at all. And it's all and, and this is like, you know, if you've seen you five, seven, one, where you watch the whole film and then the credits roll and it says, By the way, none of this was really done the way it was in this film and the Royal Navy did it all. It's kind of like that for Passchendaele, isn't it? So we've just told you this massive, long, over-an-hour-long story just to tell you that in a few months' time, we just give up all of this ground of our own free will Beginning yeah, it's
2: it's actually much worse than you think as well. Yeah. Because, yeah, could could it could it get any worse than this? Yes, it can because yes. in October uh, Russia goes into revolution and pulls out of the war, and so hundreds of thousands of German soldiers <laughs> are going to be uh, moving west to fight the British and French. Um, can it get any worse? Yes, it can actually because Italian Second Army was uh, utterly obliterated yeah. um, at Caporetto in October. Rumors well. off.
1: Pluma's is going to Italy now.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and so just at the time that the, the Germans are going to be getting much stronger on the Western Front, um, Britain and France have to send uh, divisions out to Italy to prop the Italian army up. Um, it's uh, it, it's a it's a moment of utter black, bleak misery, and uh, the the absolute rock bottom of morale. Uh, for, 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 for Britain in particular, I mean, the French are sort of picking themselves to, together again. But yeah. um, for, for the British army, it's, it, it could hardly be worse because you've, you've done everything. You, you've thrown everything at it and, and, and the kitchen sink and you've not achieved your aims. And, and so got, it's, what, a
1: quarter of a million British casualties, 70,000 dead.
2: It's it's something like that, and and, and maybe the kind of the, the, the one thing to say about it is I don't think the German casualties were, were any smaller if uh, if at all, and actually you know Germany could very ill afford you know another horrible mauling like they had on the Somme, so it's it's no it's no picnic. It's not even the over, German here. army. Yeah,
1: Cambrai still to come.
2: Yeah, indeed. Yeah, well, that's I uh, think
1: we we haven't mentioned that the reason this does plod on for so long is to detract attention from the fact that we're plotting a big tank attack, which we can't do up here because of the ground further south. That's one of the justifications for why this carries on so long, isn't it?
2: Yeah, but but even then, you know Cambrai Cambrai works and then it doesn't, does it? Yeah. It's uh, the, the German counterattack, which we which you know Haig and the others didn't think that they had in them at that stage. They thought they were too badly mauled to launch a counterattack like they did, but but sure enough they did and, and captured not only a lot of ground that had been gained in the initial assault at Cambrai, but quite a lot of those big metal boxes that we um, that we like, you know, the ones with the tracks. What are they called.
1: I don't know,
2: Gareth goes on about them a
3: lot. I remember. Yeah. I suppose oh. the frustrating thing for for me for this one, I mean, it's a hard one to try and... They have a bit... Well, the first bit I can sort of see, and that might have worked, and it works a little bit. And then I think the most frustrating thing is they get to the second part, and they've nailed it. They've got it. They make all this preparation, and they know what works and what doesn't. And then they choose to ignore it. They knew that in the circumstances for the third part, you know, they weren't the same. So the, the successes they had in the second part couldn't be mirrored yet they still chose to go on with it.
1: Yeah. So you just make Pluma do everything that screwed it up in the first place. We've got
2: think, thing is, I think actually, I think there's 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 an element of kind of what happened in the previous year um, as well because what what happened at the end of the Somme offensive is Rawlinson had said, look, the, the conditions are really really bad. Uh, we need to stop, otherwise we're gonna we're just gonna we're gonna blow ourselves out trying to you know, nurdle nerdle ourselves up a little bit of a ridge line to try and improve things. And so they did. They, they kind of stopped 4th Army operations um, after October was bloody horrible uh, on the Somme and then had to kind of sit down at the bottom of the ridgeline. So in, in January and February after being in a rubbish position all through the winter, and that was really, really bad as well. Um, I can I can understand the desire to not want to go through that again. So I kind of, I, kind of, I do kind of see it, but also, you know, the, the, the losses that you know, in particular the Canadian Corps, go through, when ideally you'd be wanting to use them offensively in the new year, yeah, it's, it's it's tough to justify.
3: Oh, John Terrain made a point in an article I was reading at the weekend, and it sounded more like he was just raising the point rather than a point that he believed it. But he did make the point that actually the Germans were quite worried by the end of this. They'd lost a lot of men. And he makes the point that, you know, if it wasn't for this ill-fated assault, you know, and they hadn't lost these men. If they had all these extra men who could take part in the spring offensives in 1918, would that have had a different outcome? Now, as I say, he only sort of seemingly makes that point rather than says that's what he believes. But, you know, it's something I'd not thought about before and it did make me think a little bit.
2: Attritional warfare is not good.
1: But sadly, this for me is... I find the second half of this battle probably harder than any other point of the war to wrap my head around in terms of the decisions made... I don't know
4: what you think. I think that's a fair assessment. No, okay. I uh,
2: You can. You can certainly understand at least Haig's argument. Kind of the idea, the desire to, to take the, the the whole ridge line, so that you can you can press on early in the next year, but all the kind of other factors, you know, revolution in Russia, all those extra Germans coming over, you know, things in Italy going on, all of a sudden just take that away from them completely. There's no prospect of an early push on uh, in 1918.
1: No. I mean, you know, the more- we're not exaggerating about Italy. They look done in November yeah. 17. They look done.
2: So so, so the, the more pragmatic thing to have done would have been to withdraw to Pilkin Ridge, maybe, which they did in... in uh April 1918 anyway yeah.
1: so when the german offensive when the germans do bring all those troops across and throw them at us in spring 18 we have to tactically take the decision to give up all of this ground that's been fought for and everything we just talked about
2: yeah i quite like the fact that it comes the day after haigs backs to the wall no withdrawal uh, order as well yeah the, the very next day it's okay yeah we're yeah. going to pull off the passion del now. Yeah. But, but for 12 hours unless you're in belgium some brackets 12, <laughs>
1: 12 hours is why i've got a mug with that on it
2: yeah
1: brilliant guys thank you very much i hope we've given you all something to think about um probably i don't know about you i feel like i need a drink now <laughs>
0: <laughs> when our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book.
4: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands.